0: All right, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. We have them scattered throughout the room. And in our Bibles, you're going to be going to page 910. Page 910, we're going to be going to Acts 2. This morning... um, now, before I jump into that, let me just say Happy Thanksgiving. I guess this is the appropriate time to say that. Happy Thanksgiving, you guys. Uh, this week's going to be a great time to overeat and to hang out with the people you love and with those other people too. And, uh, and so I hope you have a great week with, with family and with food um, and that it really is a time of joy. Next week is the start of Advent. Advent is the season that leads up to Christmas. It's the four Sundays preceding Christmas, and traditionally the church has observed that season um, as a way of preparing believers' hearts um, for the celebration of the birth of Christ. Uh, In a culture like ours that is so um, doggedly consumeristic, so absolutely focused on material uh, wealth and, and, um, and those things, I, I think it's really profitable for the church to enter into that ancient rhythm, to prepare our hearts, to actually consider God breaking into the world um, in an act of um, spiritual warfare and an act of spiritual generosity to bless us and solve our greatest problem, right? So I'm going to be putting some stuff out on the city this week that will hopefully help you engage the Advent season. If you don't know what the city is, it's our online communication tool, um, and uh, it's our way of staying connected with you. And and so if you're new around here, maybe you haven't signed up for the city, you can visit Connection Point in the lobby. Uh, It's very easy to sign up. just takes a couple minutes, and then you'll get an email digest of anything we're pushing out. Um, But it's a great way to stay plugged in and a great way for us to put resources into your hands. So sign up for that. But um, join us next week as we kick off the Advent series. We're going to be doing a, uh, a four-week series through the, uh, the, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, uh, to just help prepare our hearts for the celebration of the birth of Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at the first sermon ever preached in Acts chapter 2, um, in a sense. Now, obviously, there were messages given throughout the Old Testament, but when we think about sermons, we really do think, in a sense, of, of someone delivering a message of importance, a biblical message, to the church. And, and in that sense, today's text really is the first um, sermon preached. Now, I had a hard time as I was preparing um, this text um, for a number of reasons. It's a, it's a weighty text. I mean, academically... What we have here is Peter, empowered by the Spirit of God, um, and preaching this this, uh, seminal message to the church, and and it's incredibly important, uh, both in its, its content and for its historical glimpse that it gives us into the theology of the early church. But what we do with it, how we treat it, is not merely academic. I mean, the reality is this was a living message in a living context that had a powerful result, You're going to find out that at the end of this sermon, um, at the end of this day, we we see 3,000 people added to the church, 3,000 people becoming believers over the course of, um, really out of the heart of this message. I I think it has to be counted as one of the most powerful sermons ever preached. Um, So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through the sermon and unpack it a little bit. Some of its power is going to be difficult for us to enter into because we are not, um, for the most part, as far as I know, Orthodox Jews um, who are incredibly familiar with with the context and the content um, that Peter is unpacking. So we're going to have to unpack some of that um, because we're going to have to deal with some stuff that's not super familiar to us. And then we're going to talk about what it teaches us. All right, so in your Bibles, we're going to work our way through this text instead of reading it all at one time. Um, and so grab it and keep it open. Now, in order for us to unpack the sermon, which starts in verse 14, we really need to get that context again. We, look, we looked at it last week in verses 11 and 12. The uh, the disciples had been waiting in the upper room uh, during the celebration of Pentecost, a huge festival uh, in Jerusalem, and um, the Spirit came on them in a very powerful way. There were flames like fire. They were speaking in other tongues, in other words, in other languages they hadn't learned. Um, they were going out into the streets, and, and people from all over the regions were hearing people sp- hearing these guys speak in their own languages, and, and it was incredibly disorienting. Uh, and then this is what they, what they say. We hear them in verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? All right, so that's the question they're asking. right? They're confronted with this spectacle. They're confronted with this thing that is inexplainable, right? it's something they've never experienced before. And their question is, is, what does this mean? While others mocked and said they are filled with new wine um, because all they heard were all the different languages being spoken, and it sounded like, like gibberish, and, uh, and so they thought they were drunk. So essentially they're saying, what is this? What is going on? All right, here's the thing. Peter's going to preach a sermon, and all good sermons seek to answer the questions the people we're talking to are asking, right? I mean, that's the the point of a sermon is to unpack the Word of God in such a way that you're actually addressing the questions of, of your audience, and you're doing it in a way that they can hear it, right? So you're taking into account who you're speaking to, the context in which you're speaking, Uh, And then you're giving them the answer they need, but not necessarily the answer they want. So people ask the question, and and the job of of a preacher is ultimately to answer that question uh, from God's Word in a way that is clear and relevant and understandable, but not necessarily the way they're anticipating or want the answer. We call this contextualization because you have to communicate the truth in a way that is sensitive to your context that is sensitive to the people you're speaking to and sensitive to the culture in which you are speaking. This is a Jewish audience. Okay? Peter is, of course, Jewish, and he is speaking to a Jewish audience. This is, Pentecost is a huge Jewish festival, so, so the people in the city are Jews or proselytes. Uh, proselytes were non-Jews who had converted to Judaism, and these are all people that have been very um, familiar with the Jewish culture and history and scriptures. And that's part of the reason this sermon is is honestly a little bit difficult for us to enter into because it's not our context, right? That's not the language we speak. Those aren't the references we make, right? So we don't have that. So take a look at verse 14 as uh, as Peter gets into it. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, uh, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. All right, this is biblical language. Uh, basically, what he's saying is you need to pay attention, okay? I'm getting ready to tell you something important. Um, and as I was reading this, uh, it reminded me of that, that video that kind of went viral over the last year of this little kid. His name's Mateo. And uh, he's talking to his mom, and she's trying to tell him he can't have a cupcake. And he's just standing there, Linda, Linda. Linda. Linda, 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 listen, 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 listen. If you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. It's incredibly cute. It's very funny. Everybody who doesn't have toddlers will be entertained. Um, If you have toddlers, you will understand the dilemma of that parent. It's incredibly cute and maddening at the same time. So, So he's basically saying, people, 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 listen, 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 right? Pay attention, right? Look at me, listen to me, because I have something important to say. Verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Um, All right. He's disarming them with a little bit of humor. I don't know if you're catching it. It's 9 a.m. Right? He's like, all right, the time for getting drunk is later. All right? It's 9 a.m. We'll do that later. That's not where we're at yet. Okay? These people aren't drunk. Um, Come back later. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. All right. Pause. Some of you have probably never heard of the prophet Joel. But they had. Uh, Joel is this little book in the Old Testament. It's three chapters long. And its theme is the day of the Lord, which sounds wonderfully comforting to us, but when you read through it, you find out it's not. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament way of talking about the final judgment of God, it is a book of apocalyptic descriptions of that final judgment. All right, that would have seemed out of place at this point in time for the Jewish listeners, right? Pentecost is what they came to gather. Pentecost was a celebration. Pentecost was a feast. The barley harvest had just been brought in, and they were celebrating it, and, and the wheat harvest was about to begin. And, and so this was a time of partying. This was a time of, of they, would, they would fast in the morning, and then they would party in the evening. Uh, and, and so for him to bring up Joel in this context, they were familiar with it, But it would have been a little bit like the the needle sliding across the surface of the record. Like, whoa, that was a little disorienting. Why are you quoting Joel in this context, right? It's not exactly what they were using for their daily meditations at this point in time. All right, take a look and see what he quotes, starting in verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, there's three things going on in this quote from, from Joel chapter 3. Um, first, he's answering their question, right? Remember their question, what does this mean? What he's saying is, is this is what it means. As you see all of these people speaking in other languages, the pouring out of the Spirit of God on these men and women... And as they're moving out and, 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 and showing this miraculous power, this is the sign that Joel prophesied, right? That, that this is what would happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Spirit of God would be poured out. So, so what you're seeing manifest here is, is a sign. It's a precursor. It's an announcement, right, that the last days are here. Right? In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. What he's saying is this is the inauguration of the last days. Right? This is a critical turning point in the story of, of, of humanity. This is a critical turning point in God's story of, of redeeming and, and restoring all things. And, and we are now entering into the last days. And so as you see all of these people speaking in foreign languages and, and these miraculous signs, it's an announcement that the final age is upon us. Now, when the New Testament talks about prophecy, um, that people are prophesying, I want you to catch that that often does include um, speaking of things that will occur in the future. When we talk about Old Testament prophecy, there's no doubt about it. New Testament, we see prophets at times um, moving in that direction. But in the New Testament, the the terminology is broadened to mean the proclamation of truth. So as they are prophesying, they are authoritatively proclaiming the truth through the power of, of the spirit, right? So it's not necessarily telling the future; it's telling the truth, but from a spirit empowered, authoritative place. Now, the second thing that's going on in this quote, after he moves through that section, is all of this talk about the moon turning to blood and, and the sun being darkened, and 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 all of this really apocalyptic kind of scary stuff, right? And, and that's really a reminder. What that would do for the Jewish readers is it would provoke them to remember that God hates sin. And that there will come a day where his patience comes to an end. That he will not forever tolerate rebellion in his creation. That he will not always tolerate sin in his creation. There will come a day of cleansing. There will come a day of judgment. And on that day, on the day of the Lord, there will be a final authoritative end to sin in the created order. Now, normally, for the Jewish audience, this would have been something that they found comfort in. Because when they read Joel 3, typically what they saw was the judgment of the Gentile nations. The word Gentile just literally means nations. (laughs) So it's almost repetitive. Nation, nations, right? It just means everybody else. So it's non-Jewish. And so when they read this, what they heard was God's going to judge all of those unbelievers. God's going to judge all of those people outside of our nation, right? Right? And so they would normally take comfort in it. The third thing that's going on in this section where, where Peter ends off is, is he ends with this invitation. Right? That final verse in, in the quotation uh, is that there's an invitation that flows from the message. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? There's a judgment coming. The day of the Lord is, is at hand. Right? The, the, the gift of tongues and this crazy thing that you're seeing happening is evidence that we are in the inauguration of the final age, but there is salvation. Judgment isn't a foregone conclusion. It is, but there's a way out for us as individuals. So at this point, he's, he's got them listening, right? He's got them listening. He, he, he used a little bit of humor um, to disarm them right? And, and, and uh, got them all kind of on the same page. He, he connected with their culture, right? He grabbed a text that was going to provoke their attention and tie them in. So from a, a sermonating perspective, that's not even a word, but, but from a perspective of somebody who preaches sermons, I'm reading this going, holy cow, you did a really good job for an impromptu sermon. This guy didn't prep this, right? He didn't have time to write it in advance. This whole thing just kind of happened, and then the stage was set, and basically we're saying, what does this mean? And so he got up and, and, and in an impromptu sense delivered this. It's pretty impressive. Um, but I love the way he, in the beginning, basically gets everybody relaxed and listening. Matt Chandler, who is an incredible preacher in our age, Um, talks about the power of humor and and using that context, common context, to put people at ease because it it takes people from like this, you know, defensive and closed off to to more like this, where they're they're kind of relaxed and listening. And he said that's the perfect time, you know, to punch them in the heart. You want them to drop their guard so you can punch them in the heart right? And and that's what Peter does in a sense. He gets them relaxed so that he can bring uh, the punch to home, right? Take a look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right, I love the, the repetition. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus. He wants them to be very, very clear who he's talking about. Right. He's not talking about some other Jesus. He's not talking about Jesus. He's, not talking, about, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, which is interesting because Nazareth was not exactly a, a, a winning place to be from right? Nathaniel, at the beginning of John, when he found out that Jesus was from Nazareth, his first question was, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, I could think of some places that I would refer to that way, but some of you might be from there, so I'm not going to. But, but almost all of us have one of those places where we're like, can anything good out of, come out of that place? You know what I'm saying? So Jesus of Nazareth, that person you had no esteem for, that, that person that you, that you despised, that person that you rejected. In fact, that person, that Jesus that you delivered into the hands of the Romans to be crucified, that Jesus, the one that you helped kill, the man of no reputation, was kind of important. You conspired to silence him, and in conspiring to silence him, you were attempting to silence God. And in doing so, you were cooperating with lawless men. That's how, that's how Peter puts it. In other words, you're in the camp of the lawless. You're in the camp of the Romans, right? Obviously, the Romans had plenty of laws. He's not talking about it in that sense. What he's saying in, in lawless is they're outside of covenant from God. You, you put yourself in that camp of rebellion and, uh, and hostility toward God. All right, think about what's happening here. Peter had just put the day of the Lord in their minds, right? He had just quoted from, from Joel 3, and it would have reminded them of God's impending judgment. And, and part of them would have been like, yeah, okay, all right, God's going to judge the Gentiles. And then he says to them, you're among them. You're in the camp of lawless men. You're in the camp that's outside the safety. You. Are responsible. Now it is interesting that even as he declares them responsible, he makes it very clear that God wasn't taken off guard. Right? This Jesus, whom you delivered over to be crucified, for which you are responsible, God had a bigger plan that he was working through your rebellion. Right? According to God's foreordination, God had already set up this time and this place for Jesus to ultimately die. He had a plan in that death. The crucifixion wasn't plan B. It wasn't like like Jesus showed up kind of hoping he'd be accepted, kind of hoping he'd be able to establish the kingdom of God, but when he was rejected, God went to plan B. The crucifixion was plan A all along. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, it was part of God's definite plan to redeem and restore. So even as God was working out his sovereignty through their rebellion, it didn't remove the accountability of the rebellion from them. They made their choices. They rebelled against God, and they were standing there responsible. I have a feeling this wasn't a pleasant moment. This wasn't one of those feel-good sermon moments where they're all like, yeah, this makes me feel good. You're talking to my felt needs. I'm encouraged, right? This is more like one of those, oh, crap moments. You know what I'm saying? Like like when your eyes are opened and it suddenly you realize the mess. You ever had one of those moments? I'm going to tell you a story. 2006, there was a guy named Nick Flynn. Good-looking guy. He visited the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, and as he was going through the museum, he was going down a set of steps and, and tripped over a loose shoelace. He stepped on his own shoelace and, and, and just tumbled down the steps and ended up hitting a sill on which there were some, some vases, and um, he, he just knocked them all down, and they were shattered. And, uh, and, and he was disoriented and, um, and hurt and he got up, and he brushed himself off, and he looked around, and there wasn't anybody there. And, and he just um, was embarrassed. He was hurt. Um, n- nobody was there, so he just left. He got up, and, uh, and he walked out. He got home and turned on the news, and he saw this picture of himself crumpled on the floor and the fragments of the vases with a big headline that said, Have you seen this man? The vases that he broke were from the King dynasty. They were worth over a half a million dollars. It was then that he realized that these weren't just cheap decorations in a nice museum. They were, in fact, one of the exhibits, and in fact, the most expensive. In that moment, the truth was setting in. He was having one of those, oh, crap, moments, right? When he realized, not only did I do this, but I'm responsible. And there's a lot of people looking for me, right? So he had to, I won't, if you want, if you're interested in how that plays out, it doesn't go anywhere really interesting from that other than he now gets publicity and people had to make fun of him. Uh, But it wasn't a good moment. And that's kind of what's happening as Peter is preaching, right? There's that moment of realization where they realize we did this thing, and it was bigger than we thought. We did this thing and, and, and we were leaving it behind, and, and, and there are consequences to it that are more significant than we realize. They were having that oh crap, oh crap moment and and they were realizing that Jesus, that one that we despised, was God's. So Peter takes them on from there in verse 34. In verse 30 or 24. Uh, God that one that you delivered up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is death. All right, this is both very good and very bad news. Um, it's, it's not good news generally when the guy you try to kill won't stay dead. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when you're like, all right, we're, we're really tired of hearing you, so we'll just kill you. And then he comes back from the dead. That's bad news, right? Um, But there's good news in here too. It's really buried in that very interesting phrase. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, like birth pangs. That's a really weird way to talk about resurrection. That God was loosing the birth pangs. What do birth pangs have to do with somebody being dead, well, in a sense, what it means is that Jesus went into death, but he didn't do it uh, as a victim. He did it as a hero. And in going into death and coming back out of it, he undid the pain of death. Right? He loosed the pains. And in doing so, he undid that. He was born again. And in his new birth, his resurrection, he became the firstborn of a new creation. He became the firstborn of a new age in which he was not simply going to be alone. He was going to bring others. So while they were responsible for what they had done, God had a greater plan that would, in fact, work to bless them. He was undoing the pain of death and through him offering others an opportunity to enter into the new creation. Verse 25, he goes on. For David says concerning him, of course, reference to David is important. Everybody there would have thought very highly of David. David was the most respected king in Jewish history. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My tongue will also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Um, David, obviously, as we read this, is talking about Jesus. This would have been a, a pretty huge Revelation to the Jewish audience at that time. They, they took those verses as David speaking of his own experience, but obviously he wasn't talking about David. In in the place where they were standing, in fact, right around the corner was was David's tomb. Uh, and he's going to make reference to that in a moment. They could walk around the corner and actually see where David's remains lay. So it's very clear that as he's speaking, my soul shall not be abandoned. Sheol, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about himself in type. He was speaking of one of his descendants. In Old Testament prophecy, a lot of times this is the way it works. Um, They will make a prophecy, and from a distance it looks like a single thing, like like a set of mountains where you have a series of peaks that look like they're all in the same place. But when you get up to that peak, you realize there are great valleys between the mountains that separate them by by a long distance, and, and it would take a long time to move from one to the other. And so a lot of times as you move through Old Testament prophecy, you realize that what looked like a single event from the prophecy actually turns out to be multiple events as it's fulfilled. And that's what what Peter is saying, is that this thing that that David prophesied was really about Jesus. He was speaking about his his descendant, his greater descendant. And then he drives that home, starting in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. So he drives from their responsibility his death to God's deliverance in his resurrection. And we are witnesses. Interesting point. Um, the primary apologetic of the early church was the fact that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. By apologetic, I mean proof, right? So, so anytime people questioned them, how can, how can we believe what you're saying? Their response was universally the same. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. If you don't believe us, go talk to the other people who saw it. Right? There were a lot of eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared to many, many people after his resurrection. This is a compelling proof, not just then, but now. Think about this, you guys. The early church exploded in the very place at the very time the events took place. Not 200 years later, 200 miles away. Right? This wasn't somebody 200 years later saying, oh, hey, we missed this really important thing that took place. In the very place, at the very time it took place, the church explodes. The the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection were compelling at that time, and they are compelling today. In fact, this is um, one of the primary areas where I I challenge some of my skeptical friends. I'm like, look, there's a lot of things that I get. You have a lot of questions that I'll be happy to talk through with you. But there are some questions I have for you. You have to find a way to explain the explosion of the church. right? You have to find a way to explain that, that the church grew by thousands immediately in the place and at the time the events took place. If somebody was making this up, wouldn't distance and time help the deception? Like like if they were making this up, would they really say, go talk to those people over there. Go talk to people in the very place at the very time. Go talk to people who may not even be believers and ask them what they saw. It's incredibly compelling that the church saw its most explosive growth at ground zero. The very place at the very time Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's, in fact, the very proof that that Peter is calling out here. He says, we are eyewitnesses. Verses 33 through 36, he goes on. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's bringing it back around to the event that started the sermon. Um, the tongues and the, the, the displays of, of power, right? Verse 34, For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that you crucified, that Jesus, he's the one who sent the Spirit, who is now leading people to speak in tongues. All this craziness you see around you, (laughs) that came from Jesus. The one you rejected, the one you despised, the one you sent to the cross, the one that God resurrected, and and the one that had just recently ascended back into the presence of God, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God. And he culminates the sermon with that final statement, In verse um, 36, where he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is both Lord, and by here he speaks of, of his ultimate transcendent authority. It wasn't that Jesus didn't already have that authority, but in some ways, through the, the death, burial, and resurrection, he was given a new mantle of authority. We've talked about this in the past. He now has the authority not just to judge, but to forgive sin. Ultimate authority now rests in his hand. He is both Lord and Christ. Now, now for some of you, this may be revelation. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? It's a title. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word that means Messiah or anointed one. God has made him Christ. God has uh, declared him to be his anointed one through the resurrection and the ascension. He basically has put his seal on Jesus. This is the one that I sent. Everything he said is true. How do we know? Because he came back from the dead. And when someone comes back from the dead, you need to listen to what he says. There's an authority that comes with that. This is the hero for whom you have been waiting And he is the one now sitting at his father's right hand until his enemies are made his footstool. All right, remember the context. Peter started the sermon with a reference to Joel, and he talked about the day of the Lord. What happens on the day of the Lord to God's enemies? They're destroyed. And then over the course of the sermon, he looked at these Jews who just assumed they were right with God and said to them, you are with the traitors. You are with the outsiders. And then he ends the sermon by saying, God will make his enemies Christ's footstool. There will be judgment. The day of the Lord is at hand. This is the end of The story, this is the last times, and you are standing on the wrong side of the equation. You are standing with God's enemies. That's a pretty heavy message. The kind of message that honestly, in that context at that time, could get you killed. And in fact, we're going to find out in just a few chapters, it did lead to that. But not today. Verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The Spirit of God who is at work speaking through the disciples, the Spirit of God who is empowering Peter in his preaching, the Spirit of God who is resting on the disciples like flames of fire, that Spirit of God is also at work in the hearts of the hearers. As Peter unpacks this message, he is bringing conviction and awareness of need to the hearts of those who heard. And we know that because we can see the result, right? Like like Nick Flynn, when he saw himself on the news, right? There's that sudden realization, I'm lost. And I have a need I can't fix. I have a debt I can't pay. What can I do about it? How do I fix it? That's their question. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter at the end here, after he awakens their need, gives them the solution and the solution comes in the form of an invitation. The invitation very simply is repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's a, a very common refrain over the course of book of the book of Acts. Um, Let me unpack it a little bit. To repent, the Greek word metanoeo literally means to change one's mind, right? So it doesn't talk about primarily a change of behavior. He's not saying go fix yourself and then come, right? Go go stop sinning, and after you stop sinning, then you can come back and I'll baptize you, right? And, And then you'll be okay. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is repent. Change your mind about who God is. Repent. Reject the lies that you've believed both about God and about yourself. Reject the lies that you have believed about Jesus and believe the testimony that has been presented to you. Repent and believe are two words that go together almost all the time in Scripture because they are two sides of the same coin. In order to believe the truth, you have to reject the lie. In order to believe the truth, you have to repent of the lie that is gripping your mind, the lie that you are turning to to explain your life to make sense of your sin, to to assuage your conscience about your guilt. You have to reject the lies that you cling to to embrace the truth. And that requires humility. And it requires the Spirit of God to enlighten your heart and allow you to see both your need and God's solution. He's inviting them. This Jesus whom you despised is the glory of God. Will you see it? This Jesus whom you delivered to silence his voice was in fact in that moment being used by God to unloose the birth or the death pangs of sin, to deliver us from the consequences of our rebellion and our sin and bring us into this new age and this new kingdom. Will you believe? Will you stop rejecting and start embracing? Will you stop lying to yourself about who God is and who you are and instead rest in who God says he is? and who God has declared Jesus to be. Repent and be baptized, right? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. There are some that would grab this text and teach, well, this proves you have to be baptized in order to get to heaven. You have to be baptized in order to come into the kingdom of God. And that's actually a misreading of the text and a misreading of the broader testimony of Scripture. The word here, for, doesn't necessarily mean in order to, right? That you have to be baptized in order to. It can mean on account of right? Be baptized on account of your repentance. On a, be baptized on an account of the fact that you are now a new creation, that you are now part of this, this new age. When you believe in Jesus, you are wrapped up in his resurrection. His death removed your sin and your guilt. And now that you've believed, you are now covered in the righteousness of Christ. And his resurrection is your resurrection. You are now a member of this new humanity that is, that is going to move forward into this new creation of redemption and restoration. Be baptized as a symbol and a sign of the fact that you are not who you were, but you are now who God has declared you to be as a result of your faith. This promise is for you, Peter says, and your children and for those that are far off. And I love that. He's simply quoting the Old Testament, but I don't think Peter even understands what he's saying at this point. When he says the promise is for you and for those that are far off, what he's saying, in essence, is, is it's for you and the rest of the Gentile world. The church didn't get that really clearly until Acts 15. <laughs> that's something that's being revealed to them, this idea that the salvation isn't just for the Jews, nor does it come just for those who become proselytes to Judaism. It is, in fact, for all those who will believe regardless of their ethnic or religious heritage. Whoever God calls to himself. I love the reference to the sovereignty of God right here in the end. For all those that God would call to himself. There's no debate. There's no tension. For him, it's very simply a matter of truth. That those who come are those who are called. And how do you know if you are called, you are one who comes? So the invitation remains the same. Believe. Repent. Repent. Of, your, of the lies that you'd cling to, believe in the truth, allow that belief to work its way out in your life. And as a result, 3,000 people believed on that first day. And that's just the first day, right? This is just day one of a series of incredible days. Can you imagine um, if our little church in one day grew from a couple hundred people to 3,000? I mean, literally, can you, can you imagine it? some of you are like, that would be a nightmare. Absolutely. Can you imagine the chaos, the confusion, the craziness? You got 3,000 people. All of a sudden, all of them are like, what does this new faith mean? How do I grow in it? My marriage is melting down. My kids are rebelling. I don't have enough money to pay my bills. Everyone's showing up saying, how do we do this? It must've been insane. It must've been exhilarating and exhausting. And honestly, that's what we're going to get to look at as we continue to move through the book of Acts because this chaos ultimately is God's doing. You got all these people that traveled into Jerusalem from, from the far distances uh, of the Diaspora, from all over the world, in a sense, that known world that came to Jerusalem for this festival. They became believers there. And many of them are going to decide to stay. They got no homes. They have no income. But they're now part of this new community and they can't imagine leaving it. It's going to create some chaos. It's going to create some mess. And it's going to be a lot of fun to unpack because I think it gives us insight into the mess of our church experience as well. So we're going to be digging into that in January after we move through our Advent series, um, continuing to move into the glorious mess of the church. I have a few observations for us, though, from this text as we wrap up. First, this sermon is powerfully insightful into what drove the early church. There's a lot of people that like to talk about the early church. There's a lot of people like to talk about, well, this is what what the message of the Bible is really about, or this is the message of Jesus is really about. Um, We get tremendous historical value, valuable insight from this sermon because it tells us the heartbeat of the early church. And the heartbeat was this. They clearly saw the gospel as a message to be delivered, not just a principle to be lived out, Right? When you step back and look at this sermon, essentially, Peter unpacked a very simple message. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus ascended. You have a problem, and that solves it. You are God's enemy in your sin. You are God's friend when you believe in Christ. That's the essence of the message. Contextualized for a Jewish audience, but driven home to them clearly. When he had their attention, the intention of the entire city, what did he do? Did, he, did they just do good works? Did they just try to make people feel good? Did they, they just say, hey, we're here to love? No, they gave a message. Not a popular one. This message could have easily ended with, with Peter and the other disciples being killed. It was good news, but it was wrapped in bad news. Hmm. <laughs> right? He had to tell them you're in a bad spot before he could tell them there's a way out. He had to unpack their sin and their rebellion and the result of it in order for them to see the beauty of the Savior. And I would say that same message needs to continue to drive the church today. If this is the message, the first message of the church, it needs to continue to be the message of the church. I'm going to go so far as to say this. If we are not proclaiming this message, we are not a church. I don't care what it says on the sign in front of the building. I don't care how many people are gathered to hear it. You may be a nice, feel-good club, but you are not a church if you are not proclaiming the clear message of the gospel. And I would say, as a people, we need to continue to grow in our discernment. I mean, listen, you guys, seriously. If you hear a sermon that could be preached without Jesus... You're not listening to a sermon. If you can listen to a sermon and, and basically remove Jesus from the entire equation of everything that's been said and still result with with the same message and the same action items, that's a problem. It might be good advice. It might be emotionally warming and encouraging. But if the gospel is not the central message, it's not a real sermon. And it may not be a real church. The church is gathered around a person. And that person has entrusted to us a message. And when we gather, we give honor to that person when we proclaim that message. And when we gather around that person and proclaim that message, we are changed into the image of the person that entrusted that message to us. The second thing we see is that the message of the gospel is both offensive and comforting. Followers of Christ, there is no such thing as a non-offensive gospel. The message that was delivered to the hearers on that day was first offensive and then comforting. I want you to listen. You have to get through the offense to get to the comfort. If there is no offense in the gospel... We're not seeing our sin. And if we're not seeing our sin, we don't see our need of a Savior. The gospel is first offensive and then comforting. It has to tell us where we're broken. It has to tell us where we've fallen short. It has to show us accurately our great need before it can gloriously unpack God's solution to that need. So when we talk about contextualization of the message, contextualizing the gospel to different contexts, different times, different places, what I want you to hear is that the message itself doesn't change. The message remains the same. The audience changes, the context changes, the culture changes. So maybe your illustrations change and the, and, and the tone changes and the way you deliver it changes. In fact, there's a great sermon in Acts chapter 17. We'll get there in about 10 years. But in Acts chapter 17, there's a great sermon Paul gives it in Athens. And he's speaking to Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. He gives the same message. But it sure sounds a lot different. You know why? He's not referencing Old Testament scriptures because they didn't see the Old Testament as authoritative. He's quoting their poets. He's speaking to them in their language. He's using references from their culture, but it's the same message, contextualized. So it's answering the questions people are asking in a way they can hear it but not necessarily with the answer they're looking for or want. It's giving the message in a way they can hear. Thirdly, the authenticity of the message was evidenced by the the changing lives of the people who were delivering that message. The spoken message wasn't delivered in a relational vacuum. We, we come to Acts chapter 2, and we see Peter just stepping onto a stage and preaching this message and 3,000 people believing. And, and, and sometimes I think we walk away with the impression that that was really the entire context. He simply stepped out of the shadows into the light, gave this message. 3,000 people believed, and that was all there was to it. But, but here's the thing. The people that were there for that festival, were people who had been in and out of Jerusalem over the course of the last three years when Jesus was present and physically ministering. Probably everybody in that crowd had already heard of Jesus. Probably everybody in that crowd had heard of of his crucifixion. It was was all the buzz. They had watched Jesus. They had listened to Jesus. They had watched Jesus' disciples, the manner of their life, the, the manner of their words. They watched their relationships. In other words, it was the community of the church that testified to the message of the church. The people were watching, and because of what they saw, they listened. There's something very real here for us. People today watch the church. And I'm afraid to say that a lot of times what they see is not very reflective of the Savior. They watch us on social media. Do you understand that? They watch us in in our interactions at work. They, They watch us when we're late for work and standing in line to get our coffee. They watch us. And our lives will either reinforce the testimony or undermine it. They're continually asking not just, what are you saying? They're continually asking, how does it impact your life? Is it real? What does it mean? Our witness with our words is never just our witness with our words. Our lives testify to our faith, and we will either provoke people to listen or we will provoke people to write us off. And if you're more concerned about who gets elected in the next Presidential election, or you're more concerned about where people fall on, on certain social agendas, if you're more concerned with whether or not think you people people think you should carry a gun or not, if you if you're more concerned with your exercise of freedom than you are with the testimony of Christ, your life might undermine your message. Because what is the heart of the message? It's love. It is a God who loved us enough not to leave us alone. A God who loved us enough to actually work through our rebellion and our attempt to reject him to save us. A God who didn't hold our offenses or our ignorances or our our blasphemies against us, but instead stepped in to redeem us and restore us. Listen, people, we need to be people of the cross, which means we need to be people of love. We need to represent to a lost and crooked world the beauty of the straightness of God. And that straightness leads to the very heart of God. It is a reunion once again with love. Peter, later in one of his epistles, wrote, Be prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you. Why would people be asking about the hope that's in you unless they saw it playing out in your life in very real and powerful ways? We need to be people that are going deep in the gospel, going deep in our experience of the love of God if we're going to effectively share that love with others. In other words, we have to be going deep in our experience of, of the love of God if we're going to become good messengers of that love learning deeply from that love, from a place of joyful generosity to move out in effective ministry. All right, you guys, I'm going to wrap us up there. I'm going to put some questions on the screen to basically lead us in a time of reflection. Um, Ask you to pray. Do some, let God speak to your heart. Um, We'll share communion in a moment. But first, let me just pray for us. Father God, I thank you that, um, that you are God on mission. And that mission is to redeem and restore. I thank you that even though we are in the last days, you have in your grace and your patience created space for us to repent and believe. And then in that place of being loved and accepted to call others into the love and acceptance that you offer us in Christ. Father, we thank you um, for the message that offers us forgiveness and new beginnings. And we thank you for the great honor and the great privilege of being able to share that message with others. Move our hearts, Lord, to not just receive your grace, but to move in that grace that we might become part of the flow of your redeeming and restoring work in this time and in this place.